Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Community Radio 3CR, time is just after 7.30 and of course it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up we have to say a very good morning to Mr Stephen Ryan from Pixonia Rec Plants. Hi Stephen. Good morning Pam and good morning all the listeners out there. And what a pleasant morning it is. Beautiful. I, I drove down in the mist and there was a little bit of drizzle yeah. and I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is the sort of summer I can live with. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, hopefully we'll have some follow-up rains and things. Well, we uh, got a pretty good drenching in the middle of the night last night. Did you? I, we yeah. didn't really get a lot of rain. It's, uh, when I got up this morning, there was sort of dampness around, but there wasn't really wetness. Oh, ours was quite heavy with oh. thunder to boots. Oh, so good. Yeah, oh, well, there so you go. So, really yeah, good. so some areas will have got some decent rain. I don't think we did at Macedon, but we can live in hope. Um, but at least this cooler sort of weather takes the pressure off for a bit because uh, everything is so soft and sappy at the moment that if we get some really scrunchingly hot days like we did the other day um, things can frazzle very quickly because they haven't hardened yet yes. so it needs to be a gentle inroad into summer I think and so far we've been fairly fortunate the, that stinking hot one we had the other day is really the only one we've had so far so it's, it's been all right so yeah so it was nice to drive down this morning and come down through the mists and things it was it was yes, lovely it was very very pleasant yes it was and there wasn't any sun shining in my face as often <laughs> happens when I come down here in the mornings exactly. so um, yeah so all's good in the gardening world excellent and we have to say a very good morning to Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm in Clonbernane morning morning Graham. Pam and, and good morning Stephen and Stephen's in, in, has a jungle of plants in the studio. <laughs> I bought in a lot of stuff this morning. Uh, uh, we do find as we get closer to Christmas, and people should be aware of this, is that, I don't know, we get fewer callers sometimes. and it, you know, So we needed lots of stuff in here, I think, to fill out. And I might mention, Graham, too, that... I'm assuming it's already up on our Facebook page. I sent all the pictures in to uh, Liz yesterday uh, with captions, which I hope have gone in the right order. But anyhow, if I describe the plants and they're not in the right order, you might be able to work them out for yourselves. Uh, but she's very efficient at doing those things. And Terrific. so the images of the plants I'll be talking about a little later that I'm, well, Graham, Pam and I are all surrounded by, uh, are already up on the Facebook page. So if you want to go in and have a look, uh, you'll be able to work out which ones I'm talking about and actually see see them aren't we so clever log into facebook and and type in 3cr gardening show yeah and i do notice that liz puts up every week who's going to be on the program the day before as well so yes yeah so yes i noticed last night that it was sitting up there with with you graham and i as the names uh on the program this morning i think that's very clever yeah Yeah. so it keeps people informed and uh gives them information that they can utilize and reminds them to listen as well Absolutely. Just, uh, just, just shows you how famous we are, doesn't oh, it? Yeah, yes. right. yeah, we're on Facebook like about, you know, 90% <laughs> of the... <laughs> well, uh, we had four mils of rain overnight at our place. At that oh, that's time good. Okay. And, and um, I'm looking at uh, through the paddocks and, and the dams are pretty well all full, which is fantastic. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to go into summer with full dams, isn't oh, it? You yeah, feel amazing. a little bit more comfortable about yeah, it. It's yeah. nice to have a bit in the tank too. Yes, yeah. Well, my tanks are full, and uh, I used to use my tanks and top up my fish ponds, uh, which I could still do. Uh, but I've now got my house's storm water goes straight through my front fish pond. So right. if we get a bit of rain, it tops up naturally from my storm water, and the pond out the back uh, is 
run from the tanks, which are run from the house next door. So instead of draining the tanks into the pond now, I've got the overflow that goes down into the ground through a pipe way out the back garden and tops up the back pond so I can keep those tanks full, except in emergencies. Uh, uh, But the overflow, instead of going to the street, is now going out to my pond out the back. And I'm assuming the moisture that disappears out of the pond, because it's not completely and utterly watertight because it's a clay pond, it's not a, uh, a lined one. Yep. I'm assuming that's going down through the tree roots in the garden and oh, what yeah. have you anyway. So it's all, all good. Yep. So it's, it's, it's great. Mm-hmm. I go out and I measure a few mills in the tank and then I, or in the rain gauge and I rush out the back to see whether the pond's gone up. <laughs> so it's, it's very exciting. Yeah, terrific. Mm. Graham, that hot day the other day, um, I have to say I had a whole lot of roses just opening up. Mm. And of course, the petals have all been burned round mm. round the uh, the edges of the petals. Mm. But you know, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Mm. But then I guess if you if you've got the time and you go around and you deadhead them you all, deadhead them all. Yeah. yeah, and no time flat, they'll all be in flower again, I guess. So yeah, well, yeah. just go back along the stem, and that's what we've been encouraging people to do. Come down in the old language about mm. nine inches, mm. and you've got flowers coming back on there in, in about fifty days in this weather. Mm. And uh, you know you see plants in, in in the nursery, roses in the nursery the next day after it's hot, and you see them just grow like they they're put on inches. Mm. And especially young plants that have just been potted up, and they do love the heat. But the big challenge, of course, is in in black plastic pots, and and an actual fact, uh, the roots in the black plastic pots go brown because they burn off. Yeah. And and uh, I did some temperature checks last year in the heat and some of the some of the pots were getting up to 43 degrees mm. in, inside the pot. And um I I really I actually bought in a cardboard pot here that um we'd been doing some work on and about uh, about 10 years ago with Dick Pratt when he was alive. Yeah. Mm. But he would never switch over to um cardboard pots because he he said at that time he couldn't manu- manufacture them in, in big numbers to make any money with them. Mm. But I must say I was in our Wallen uh supermarket of Woolworths um uh, 2 days ago and the revolution's hit. There's mm. so much plastic gone off the shelves. Which That's is a all. good thing. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't buy pots. I mean, all mm. my stuff is in black plastic pots, but uh, I recycle other people's pots, which is another mm. thing I don't quite understand in the nursery industry because mm. a lot of nurseries won't take back pots and mm. use them again. Mm. Um, I have this feeling that over all the years I've been a nurseryman, I can't pin any plant death down to having used a recycled dirty pot because I don't mm. wash them either. Mm. I just give them a quick shake out and get rid of any of the yeah. rubbish that's mm. still in them. Because yep, yep. uh, I can remember as a kid being... Being sent outside to wash the pots and the oh, right. and so <laughs> they, keep you yeah, occupied. <laughs> and, uh, Dad used to send me out, and I used to have to wash all the pots. And I'm thinking, oh my god, and it was an awful job. <laughs> yeah. I used to come in with chilblains, and oh, it was dreadful. Yeah. So I don't wash pots; I just stack them away and I reuse them. And some pots. Because I, I, I have my own little sort of stick-on labels with prices on, and of course every time I repot, I've got to go around and pull, peel the labels off yes. because the next pot yes. or the next plant, and it's probably going to be a different price. And sometimes I'll find that I've there's little bits of labels still left on there, and you'll find the remnants of four or five stickers, and you think, well, that's four <laughs> or five times I've reused recycled. that same that's same right. pot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I keep reusing them, and customers keep bringing them back until they actually start to disintegrate. Um, so I rarely if ever buy them mm. uh, so I figure well there's a lot of black plastic pots out there so I might as well keep using them but if we could get a product at a reasonable price mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, in a sort of compressed cardboardy sort of form I think the issue is for people to get used to the look because yes. it's different 
Um, and it's the same with all these things. I can remember when I was a kid, well, young adult, doing my training, we went to one of the seedling growers one day to have a look at their seedling production, mm. uh, you know, of all their punnets of little plants, and there was a discussion on about Cranburn loam because they were using the sandy black loam from yes. Cranburn is yes. what they were potting all their seedlings into. And something was said that they could actually perfectly well grow them just in straight sand with feeding, but people didn't like the look of it. Mm. Oh, so okay. you would have to get round the issue of people getting something in white sand mm. uh, uh, because they were used to getting something that it was in something that looked like it might be soil, yes. even though Cranbourne loam mm. is one of those things that I think is only tenuously soil anyway. It's basically black sand. Right. Um, but it was about the perceptions and the look. It wasn't about how well you could mm. grow the plant. Mm. And I think it's the same with some of these alternative type pots. Mm. Till people get their head around the look... Because it's a sort of a, dare I say, rustic, mm. possibly mm. rustic. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, mm. yeah, and I don't, I, I don't think it's an unpleasing look. But people are used to things looking a bit sharp and clean and and what have you. And I guess you don't get to recycle those. No. Well, the idea, of course, is to be able to plant the whole plant. Yeah, and pot yes. and yes. just use a, a standard biodegradable and, put, and put a few slits in it, and then just plant the whole lot. Yeah. yeah. But don't you find that's teaching people bad habits? In some ways, because you don't ever get to see the roots, yeah, whether well, they're wrapping there round is themselves that side of it. or... Yeah. And, of course, you do have the people out there, which I'm sure is none of our listeners, who don't even realise you're supposed to take things out of a black plastic pot when yes, you put I, them around. I have heard that. Yeah, I've had that issue yes. a few times. I've yes. spent ages chatting to a client who's lost a plant, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what's gone wrong, yes. only to find out that eventually, oh, well, you meant to take it out of the pot. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I can remember as I must have only been a, I don't know, 16 or 17 year old kid, mm. um, working in my dad's nursery. And I went through that whole process. And while I was going through that process with somebody, um, Kevin Hines walked in behind. He was coming to visit mum and dad. And so these people hadn't seen him. Uh, I'm sure they would have recognized him had they. And he was standing behind and you could see his eyes getting bigger and bigger and bigger as he realized what was happening. And after they left, he said, you know what? When you work on television and you're working, you know, with parks and gardens like he did, you didn't actually mix with the ordinary people quite so much as you perhaps should. Mm. And he didn't realize people would have that sort of basic lack of knowledge. Mm. Yes. He was just shocked that there are people out there that would stick something into the ground in a black yeah. plastic pot. So any of our listeners have done that, shame on you, <laughs> because, you know, you should know better by now. Well, to be honest too, Stephen, if you, if you go, if you wander around um, Mifkus, yeah. for instance, the display gardens... They they're all in pots they're all buried in, pots. in the ground. They, yeah. might be, they might be supposedly hidden, but they're not always adequately hidden from sight and people could get the idea that mm-hmm. yeah that's you do how you do a garden pot. yeah yeah because I, I guess people see those display gardens and don't realize in some ways that well i know they know that it's a display garden but in some ways they don't realize that it is a temporary display and so they assume that's what you can actually yeah. do well if no one's ever bothered to tell them and then they're seeing examples of, of cr- gardens yeah. created with the plants in the pots mm. you know then yeah <laughs> Oh, by the it's way, speaking of Mifkus, um, there's going to be a landscape garden down there, and stupidly I forgot to bring all the details down, but there's a new landscaper who's got a, uh, a gig down at Mifkus, and they got in touch with me a few weeks ago, and they're going to use some Dixonia Rare Plants plants oh, in their okay. display. So some oh, of good. my plant material will be down in Mifkus next year. Okay. So that's sort of exciting. So it is. I've been madly potting things up, because they're going to need sort of they bigger... Want 
Yeah, yeah. yeah, they want bigger stuff. Yeah. So, so things that I would normally have in a six-inch pot are going up into ten-inch pots to be put aside for for Mifkus next year and and all that sort of stuff. So well, that's exciting. Yeah. So my nursery will get a, a mention in all the PR work and all that sort of stuff they're doing, and they seem like a, a an innovative and interesting young landscape group uh, and I will talk about it at some stage when I've got all the paperwork in front of me uh, but I just thought seeing as you mentioned Mifkus I would just throw it yeah. in whilst I was thinking about it because it's sort of quite exciting so I gave some things the Chelsea Chop the other day <laughs> uh, and for those who don't know what the Chelsea Chop is uh, it's for perennials that you want to have have a re-flourish of flowers so you cut them back at a certain time before the show to bring them on to their next batch of flowers, which would be like doing it with your roses and things, I guess. Definitely do it with the roses. Yeah. The the issue with the Chelsea Chop is in Australia, I'm not really sure when I should be cutting them back to get them right for Mifkus in March. So I've just done it anyway just to see how it goes. But they do it over there because they've Got everything down to the last degree. They Maybe exactly we should call it the Flemington Shop. Yeah, or something like and, that. Um, and, in uh, Melbourne. Well, what is the Chelsea Chop? Do you do you trim the roots? No, no, no. You chop no, the no, plant down. The... Yes. Uh, and it's for perennials, basically, right. so that you yeah. send them into a later flush of flowers. Right. So if they were coming up into flower and mm. you knew you needed them in X number of weeks yeah. later to be in flower, yeah. then, you know, they've, they've been doing this for a 100 years, so they've sort of got their head around it. Yeah. So they know when they cut things mm. back so that it'll bring it into peak flowering just for Chelsea. Mm. Well, uh, we, and so yeah. hence the Chelsea chop. Yeah, uh, we've, been, we've been working on, on giving uh, rose roots in pots the chop mm. and trimming off the top as well, as well at the same time. Right. And reducing the, the, the root mass in the pot... So you don't get really that stress when the heat gets on the pot, mm. and roses will take it. Mm. And of course, um, w- through the through the big drought time, which was about eight years, people would come into our nursery and say, "I'm losing other plants in the nursery and the natives, but the damn roses are still growing." Mm. Simply because rose roots in in reasonably open soil, they'll spread out to will will spread out anything up to three three or four meters. Yeah, so they get out there and they find what moisture's there. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so they can and if they can't get going. through the soil, they spread out along along the top, yeah, under the mulch. <laughs> mm, yeah, yes. Oh dear. Mm. So there we go. Okay, I should get to a couple of announcements. We've got very few because everything is winding yeah, up for winding. the year. Oh, yes, but, um, Christmas is upon us. Yeah, it certainly is. Yeah, there'll be hot cross buns out there before you know it. Oh, <laughs> don't don't even go there. <laughs> right, I, sh- I should firstly remind listeners that uh, over the Christmas uh, New Year holiday period is when. And uh, Cloud Hill uh, have a lot of events mm. in their garden. And the first one coming up is their annual um, uh, Shakespeare's uh, in the Garden, uh, conducted by OZAC. Now, uh, this year they're doing Much Ado About Nothing. Uh, and it's taking place Friday the 28th and Saturday the 29th of December. Starting roughly 6.30, running through till about 8.30. Uh, cost is adults 30 $5, under 16s, $25. Now, uh, what you need to bring if you're going to go along to that is a folding chair or cushion, uh, dress appropriately for the weather, bring a jacket if the day is cool or a hat and sunscreen if the day is hot. Uh, you're welcome to bring a bottle of wine and picnic uh, in the gardens before the show, but uh, they request that you please come along early. Gates open at 5 o'clock and uh, to book... Simply uh, go to their website. All of all of their events are up on the website, as is the booking uh, 
So uh, just type in Cloud Hill and uh, their website will come up. Do remember to put an E in cloud. Yes. So it's cloud with an E on the end. Exactly. Well yeah. said. <laughs> and, for, and, and for those that haven't been to Cloud Hill, it is a place of great atmosphere. Oh, it's beautiful. It's just absolutely delightful. A wonderful place to have a twilight picnic. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. And, and to do Shakespeare, really. Oh, thinking yes. Thinking about it, it's got that sort of almost Shakespearean feel about well, it, has. it in some ways. It has. Uh, so, and yeah, ideal. Following up from that, they've got uh, several musical events in the garden throughout uh, January and uh, also February and into March. So uh, there's quite a lot going on. I won't go through them all at the moment, but uh, do have a look on the website and uh, see if there's any other events you would like to go to. Now, also, just a reminder um, that uh, 3CR are having a wine fundraiser uh, for Christmas. Uh, we lots of bottles uh, to sell as a fundraiser to keep 3CR um, going uh, and help towards uh, oh, funding that, that seems to be always essential. Radio stations cost so much to mm. keep on air. Yeah, and, and it's not our wages. No, it's <laughs> certainly not our wages. Yeah. But uh, this is a great, uh, a great way if you're wanting some wine for Christmas. There's a choice of Shiraz, Pinot Noir, Pinot Grigio and Chardonnay. Uh, $15 a bottle, or it's even even cheaper if you uh, buy by the dozen or half dozen. So if you'd like to um, order that, the wine is available for collection from the 3CR office here at 21 Smith Street. But uh, to order, you can either go online to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop, or you can phone the station during office hours on 9419 8377. Uh, now, something that uh, I did notice during the week, um, recently, once a, once a year, in fact, um, there is an Aussie bird count that takes place. Oh, yes, I've heard about this. Yes, yes, and volunteers are asked to either go into their backyards or go into their local um, park or green space mm. of some, uh, of whatever, and on a particular day, count the number and the varieties of all the birds that they see, then this uh, research is all collated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just taken place, and we now have the official um, count from this year's Aussie bird count. And um, surprise, surprise, the uh, most counted is the rainbow lorikeet. <laughs> yeah, not surprisingly, really. <laughs> not surprising, but it has... Uh, it has uh, even more, the numbers are quite incredible. So in one day, uh, 305,246 rainbow lorikeets were Goodness counted. me, are they taking over? They are. <laughs> because, because the one you would think of, the noisy miner, yeah. comes in at second, but it was only 149,800 and something. Something, yeah. Yeah, and third, the Australian magpie, of course, at 121,000. So they're... The lorikeet count has actually um, really increased yeah. over the last 12 months. That and may be habitat. Uh, they are putting mm. it down to more people are putting um, a few Australian native plants into mm. their gardens. Mm. And they're saying that this is really helping to build the numbers uh, with the rainbow lorikeet. It is a mixed blessing, though, of course, because all of our parrot species do tend to have a, a, an impact on our gardens as well. Oh, yes, yeah. they certainly do. <laughs> yes, I don't get much fruit off my trees unless I do something about it because <laughs> of the 
you know, the well, not so much the rainbow lorikeets, it's not the rainbow but, the, lorikeets yeah, but some of the other yeah, parrots are oh deadly. Yeah. Oh yes, the the rosellas are, oh. uh, and of course the sulphur crested cockatoos make yes. an awful mess of the garden. Well, they it, came in fourth. You might. Oh yeah, well, that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't surprise we're me. We're feeding them very adequately. Oh yes, they're doing quite well. Actually, around our area, we're seeing a lot more yellow-tailed blacks. Uh, which is fantastic because they don't seem to come into the garden and make any mess of the garden, but they're having a wonderful time mm. with the pine trees. Mm. So they've, they've learned how to rip pine cones apart and get at the seeds in those. And they're mm. experts at it, aren't they? Oh, God, oh, yes. yes. <laughs> they don't leave a seed. You find this skeleton of a pine cone lying on the ground that the, the, the birds have had a go at, mm. and they've got every seed out. Mm. They're really, really good at it now. Don't yes. miss the beat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you are. Just a little snippet yeah, well, of information there. And, and a big thank you to all those volunteers yeah. who go out and do it, because yeah. mm. that would not be an easy task, I don't think, to sit in a garden for a day and trying to get your... Well, I don't know, if you took a picnic in a garden... Going a actually, if you bought too many bottles of wine with you, you might see double birds. I know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that could muck up the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, so. that could be a problem. <laughs> uh, actually, speaking of something else, while it's in my head, yes. um, I was talking to Sandra from ASA the other day. Right. And next year's trip to the south of France which is a stunningly gorgeous trip, as it we is. both know. It is. They're still looking for a few people. So if anybody is interested in a fabulous trip to the south of France to see an incredible array of gardens and museums and art galleries and everything else that we saw in the south of France, eating in amazing restaurants, all that oh, sort of yes. stuff, uh, Paul Urquhart is leading the tour, uh, and they could do with, you know, well, they reckon if they had another two couples, then everything is fine with the the tour so okay. so keep that in mind if you really wanted to go somewhere special uh, I mean one of the restaurants we had in last year ended up being classed by somebody as the third best restaurant in the world that's right so that's how's right. that so, I mean there's um, an experience it so, was an experience yeah, yes it was it was yes. theatre <laughs> it was remarkable so yeah so if you've been thinking about wanting to go somewhere obviously I'm not trying to discourage people from coming with me to Madagascar next year but anyhow they're looking for some more people mm. for the South of France tour for next year and that tour we, we should add covers um, Côte d'Azur and yep. Provence yep. and up in the Savannes oh the Savannes National Park was just beautiful I mean we stopped the bus and we got out and we saw wild tulips and narcissus and crocuses and, and, and pasque flowers and uh, you name orchids. it. Orchids. The only it, thing we didn't see was a fritillaria. No, we missed that, we but missed they're that, out but there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, and, and so if you go this time, you, you might, might be lucky. Yeah, you might find a fritillaria, <laughs> which would be great. So, yeah, so ASR are looking for a couple of people to help fill up that tour uh, and get it running because obviously there are minimum numbers of people that make a tour viable. So at oh, the end yes. of the day, they have to get those numbers to, to run with the tour. Um, so, yes, if you're not coming to Morocco with me already which is now booked out uh, or you don't want to go to Madagascar strangely enough uh, then the south of France might be just the place for you so I would thoroughly recommend getting in touch with Australians studying abroad and having a talk to them there about their tours because they do Mm. run some fantastic ones Getting back to speaking of birds I I see that there's a, a new release of The Secret Life of Plants the book all mm. right. If people haven't read that, it's it's a real interesting book to read. And they talk about birds and the fact that they the birds, especially early in the morning, stimulate the stomata on the back of the leaf of plants. Okay. And of course, as as people would know, that the stomata is what um, takes the nutrition and the dew from the plant into the into mm. the plant in through the leaf. And um, they've been doing quite a bit of research in the United States about this, where they've been using a lot of chemicals in in orchards especially, and of course the chemicals eliminate the insects and the birds don't come to the orchard because there's no insects to eat. Mm. So it's broken the cycle with using chemicals. 
and um, the stimulation of the of the um, uh, plant, uh, especially early on in the mor- in the morning with with the stomata, of course, will absorb in things like liquid seaweed and and liquid feed. So um, we sort of talk about birds being in the garden, but w- w- can we see them as part of the whole? Mm. And uh, it's so important. Mm. Good. Okay, now the other, the other little uh, snippet of information that I wanted to mention is that um, uh, this week in Melbourne, uh, we've had a, an international meeting held um, uh, that uh, heard that up to a quarter of the plant species grown in botanic gardens might not survive the predicted changes to the world's climate. Uh, so a comprehensive analysis of the collections by Royal uh, Botanic Gardens Victoria shows that at least 26% of the species will be put at risk with the climate conditions predicted for Melbourne over coming decades. So to address this, um, uh, 13 representatives of uh, botanical uh, organisations flew into Melbourne this week mm-hmm. um, for the world's first Botanic Gardens Climate Change Summit. Oh, this was initiated by our own Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria. Good. We're a good ahead uh, of the pack with our gardens, we're doing, I think. We're yeah. doing some really good work. Yeah. Now, together they formed an alliance um, to share expertise, strengthen leadership and develop responses to the impact of climate change on plants and plant la- landscapes. Uh, now, they've completed this task by signing a declaration that they will work as an alliance to safeguard life by protecting landscapes. So uh, the first priority, as far as uh, this group is concerned, is to halve carbon pollution. Yeah, well, let's hope that the big carbon polluters get on board. It looks like the smaller groups are probably carrying more than their weight when mm. it comes to this. So. Well, it's good to see that, that as I say, people, um, botanic um, expertise yeah. and organisations from right around the world have united on this, and hopefully this can put pressure back not only on polluting industry but also on the government. Yeah. We really have to have action. Yeah, they, have to get, they have to move forward. In fact, if our government doesn't move forward on this, I think they're going to be left behind, in fact, by industry and everybody else because everybody actually realises that they need to do things. Um, and so industry is actually moving ahead. Uh, without government help and without government legislation. And the government's going to, in this whole field, become somewhat of a white elephant, really, Mm. if they don't get on board and do some decent stuff. Uh, We're just being left behind. Mm. Uh, You know, even even big polluters, you know, like our electric industries and so forth, are asking for some sort of government stand on these things so that they can move forward. Exactly. And if if the government's just not going to come on board, well, then, you know, they're just going to be a non-entity that doesn't matter anymore. Exactly. Because I think, you know, humankind as a whole, I think, has more or less woken up to what's going on and they really are starting to see what they need to do. Uh, So government needs to get on board. Exactly. I mean, we've got people who are wanting to to develop um, more alternative energy you know, industries, they, yeah. um, they're prepared to put the money in to get set things up, but they can't until they know what the policies are going to oh, be. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's frustrating. So we're all on hold, and it's, yeah. it's not good enough. It's no. got to change. Uh, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens when Parliament comes back next year. Absolutely. Because <laughs> I think it's going to be a new sort of era, because mm. I think all the politicians, conservative or otherwise, are going to have to wake up to what the world is actually throwing at us, uh, and we need to respond. Exactly. Um, 
Stephen, let's go to our first plant of the morning. Oh, I can't remember in what order I sent them to Liz, so I don't suppose that we'll matters just, too. We'll just but go. Yeah, all right. Well, let's start with a flowery thing. Um, here I have a yellow, and they only come in yellow, uh, hypericum. Now, hypericums are an interesting genus of plants. They come from, they're almost cosmopolitan. There's species of hypericums that come from all over the place. Um, this particular one is a garden hybrid that was found in an Irish garden called Rowellan, and so in fact it's called Hypericum Rowellum. So there you go. Very logical. Uh, there are some weedy hypericums, I must point out, uh, in, in passing, but they're mainly little perennial ones that become pasture weeds and they are a nuisance. Some hypericums are very important for herbal medicines as well. There's lots of different ways they're used in herbal medicines, but not being a practitioner of those things, I won't go into the details. <laughs> um, but this particular one makes a great garden shrub. Uh, it starts flowering well before Christmas. Uh, the flowers are, well, in the old measurements, they're a good couple of inches across, so they're quite large. Uh, and they come in successions on the stem. So each stem will have four or three or four or five flowers on it, and they come out one after the other, and as one finishes, the next one comes out. Mm. And a well-grown... How, how, how really well-behaved. They are. They're <laughs> remarkably well-behaved. Uh, and it can still be flowering prolifically when you head towards late autumn. So from before Christmas right through to late autumn, it will be in bloom. And it is a hardy shrub. I mean, it'll cope with heat reasonably well. About the only thing it doesn't like is either being in a bog or being in a spot that gets seriously dry. So it doesn't like to be dead dry. Yep. But it's not particularly intolerant of drought, but it just doesn't want to get dry, dry, because it grows quite quickly. It'll get to a couple of metres tall by about a metre and a half wide. Uh, if it gets a bit twiggy and, and scruffy over a period of time, you can slash it off near ground level and start it off again. Uh, so it's a very amenable plant, and it does yellow really well. Mm. It's a really nice, clear, bright yellow. Mm. The, the, the flower for those listeners that... Um and not on there. our Facebook page. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 a real yellow, yellow, and and us rose breeders would be envious of that yellow. Yeah, it's a good and, yellow, and, isn't it? And to retain that yellow without fading. Yeah, well, it doesn't it fade. fade. I mean, yeah. the flowers just drop off when they've had it, so yeah. it doesn't sort of fade out. Right. Um, and you've always got the next crop coming along anyway. Yes. So mm-hmm. it's a really good shrub. And the hypericums are one of those groups of plants that sort of got, I don't know, when we've gone through different eras, they've sort of disappeared a bit. Um, I mean, they used to be really popular back in the 50s. We then had the the sort of native push, and of course they're not natives, the ones that you grow as ornamentals. Uh, so they got left out, and I, I think even yellow got left out at one stage. Mm-hmm. There was yeah. a you know, push to the white garden and all those other things, so pales and pastels were all of the go, and so yellow wasn't necessarily something people were looking for. But I find yellow a really cheery colour in the garden. Mm, I just love yeah. it. So Hypericum roellen, and there's a whole range of them from fairly small shrubs. Roellen's probably one of the larger hypericums that you can get. Uh, some get bigger flowers, but they're smaller plants. So, yeah, so think hypericum again, especially if you want a good cheery yellow in the garden. They're basically evergreen, although they can lose a little bit of foliage in really frosty areas, but they're not frost intolerant, so mm-hmm. they'll cope with the cold. So yep. there you go. So hypericum roellen, do we want to do some yes, more? Yes, let's do one more. Uh, all right. Um, this is a plant that I have uh, a great soft spot for. I love climbers, and in fact, there's a little bit of a climbing... Um, uh, theme today because the vast majority of the plants I've got with me are in fact climbers um, and this one is commonly known as the silver vein creeper um, and um, it's in the grapevine family it's Parthenocissus henriana 
and it's a lightly self-clinging climber, so it will grip onto timber work and things like that. So it could run up the pergola on its own to a large extent. Um, it has dark green foliage, and it has this weird characteristic. If it's growing in the shade, it gets this lovely white vein down the centre of the leaf. And the reverse of the leaf has a slightly burgundy colour, which is useful because most climbers face outwards to the sun. Mm. So if you're looking at the back of a climber and all its flowers are on the outside of the pergola, then you're looking at bare sticks. Yes. But at least with this, you've got that burgundy back to the leaf. Mm -hmm. But weirdly, if you plant it in full sun, the white vein disappears. So you just end up with a dark green leaf. Okay. So to keep the white veins in it, it it's actually one of the few climbers I recommend for comparatively shady spots because its colour is richer in the shade and it still colours in the autumn. So autumn colour tends to need a lot of light as a rule. But this particular plant will go brilliant colours in the autumn, lovely reds, and if it's got its white vein because it's been in enough shade, the white vein stays white. So you can imagine the autumn colour with this bright scarlet red with these white veins running down the centre of the leaf. beautiful. Stunningly beautiful plant. Mm. Uh, It's hardy. It's quick-growing. It's not overbearingly fast-growing, so it's manageable. It also does something that I love in a climber, and that is that if it's running along the top of something, instead of just building up this thatch on the top like some climbers will do, where you end up with something that looks like a billowing, unstuffed mattress stuck on the top of the fence or whatever... A what, a what again? A billowing... Unstuffed mattress. Oh, there you go. Yeah, think it through, Graham. <laughs> um, what actually happens with the parthenocystis is that they'll run along what you've got to grow them on, and then they will dangle. And so if it's over a pergola or or, uh, a rose arch or something like that, you end up with these lovely dangly bits that hang through, which is really elegant. Mm. Uh, I love that effect. And you can always trim them back up if they get a bit long and whack you in the face as you're walking through or whatever. Um, But the dangly bits are really important, I think. And And it's light enough that you could grow it through a reasonably sound tree. And it will grow up through the tree, it'll run along the tree's branches, and then it'll dangle out of the tree as well, which I find particularly good. And, in fact, I'm using one of its relatives, the Virginia creeper, up through a big old Japanese maple in the garden at home. And the Virginia creeper colours about three weeks before the maple. So I get the Virginia creeper turns red, drops all its leaves, then the maple turns red and then drops all its leaves. So I get double value out of the one spot. And you could do basically the same thing with a silver vein creeper. Mm. So that's Parthenocystis henriana. Uh, unfortunately, Parthenocystis is a bit of a mouthful. Um, but there are a number of very interesting species in the genus. Um, and the Virginia creeper is probably one of the most regularly met with, although the Boston ivy, which you see growing on old buildings and things with that sort of grape-shaped leaf, is also a parthenocystis and also a very useful and attractive climber in the mm. right place. Mm. So and there remember, you, you can put it up at Pagola or a pergola. Yeah, whichever you've got, <laughs> in fact, yes. Uh, in fact, in your garden, it might even be the Lurgia. The Lurgia, yeah, what's yeah. Well, a Lurgia is basically a, an Italian pergola. I, um, I thought it was it, someone a, suffering with the Lurgia. No, Lurgia, L-O-G-G-I-A, uh, and it's sort of like a, a series of colonnades with plinths and, and things along the top, so it's basically a pergola or pergola, mm-hmm. um, but it sounds even posher. Yes, there you go. <laughs> so you could have a Lurgia instead. So there you go. Okay, well, uh, we have had a, a slight glitch this morning, but I can happily now say that we can invite our listeners to join us. Yes. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we are running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. We'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155 to have a... 
a chat to either Stephen or Graham Sargent, who are in the studio, or if you'd like to have a chat to uh, Louise on the outside line, 94198377. Graham, while we're waiting for some calls to come through, let's talk about the rose you brought in this morning. It's uh, pink. Yes. Well, and yes. we've got a pink rose here this morning, and... Um, um, I'm, I'm competing with Stephen. He's got, he's got a couple of flowering plants here. I've yeah. got to give him credit there. Oh yes, not all leaves, <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, this this rose is is um, called the Bionic Beauty. And Goodness, it, and 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 it does have a, a really interesting perfume, which almost um, it doesn't smell I mean, like grease or something, does no, it? it? You know, I'm thinking Bionic, and you know, sort of <laughs> metallic, and and you know, it's a weird name. Yes, well, for a it, rose. Yeah, it's a strange name. You have to have catchy names. Yeah, but bionic? bionic, bionic sort of brings to mind, you know, sort of exactly. metal arm bits, and, yes, you know, and and creatures that have extendable things. That's and, right. Yeah, all that sort of weird scientific or pseudo scientific stuff. Well, people said to us, "Why did you call your nursery Silky's Rose Farm? Because you remember the Silky, mm. and and um, it's it's that." Uh, play on words, isn't it? Mm. And people do remember that. And they think about silky roses, and it's got nothing to do with actual roses that you grow in a, No, it's got uh, to do with chickens. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there you go. Well, it used, <laughs> to, it used to, but yeah. Graham doesn't have silkies anymore. Uh, yeah. No. yeah, but I can't see... What was the breed that you've got really excited by more recently? They're, they're Langshans. Yeah, well, I can't see you calling it Langshans no. um, rose <laughs> bar. <laughs> no, nobody will remember that one. <laughs> uh, Leghorn could be good, Listeners, though. they're really getting at me here <laughs> in this morning. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tell us about the rose. It's it's a very soft shell soft, pink. Yes, yeah, soft shell pink, and um, and it's big. It's it forms up a nice bud, which is very, still very popular, similar to um, well, like a hybrid tea, and it's it's got about sixty petals in it. I was going to say it's a very last. full rose mm. flower, so it would mm. last well. Well, it lasts well in the bush or in in a vase. Yeah, and the bi- bionic part of things, uh, listeners, is um, it's for the bionic um, ear institute. Ah. And ah. There's, there's money. Oh, from so it's this. eye candy. <laughs> <laughs> there are some funds from this um, sale of this rose go to the research for this um, Bionic Ear Institute. Well, now um, we understand now, now the sense. name. Yeah, now it makes sense. Yes, okay. all right, Graham, I'll accept they, it. They had, to, they had to flush me out here with the, ear, <laughs> the information. We finally got there. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, that's right, yes. Uh, and now I'm assuming seeing as the breeding program seem to be heading in that direction, yeah. that it's reasonably disease-free and, and, a, and a good, hardy Pe- rose. Performs very well. Yeah. Um, I've had a bush of this growing in, in the, our garden now for probably um, oh, 12 years, yeah. and it's okay. done very well. So it's actually been around a while. Yes, it has been. Mm. And, um, and then if you put it in a pot, then uh, you really test a rose mm. because you, you, you stress them. I, I just believe that roses... Don't like pots. Mm. Oh, I'm sure really they don't. don't. Yeah. And I can hear them crying every morning. I go into the nursery, get me out of these pots and into a garden. Yes, mm. mate. Yes. <laughs> as, as soon as can. somebody buys you, you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> so that's Bionic Beauty, and it, and it does have a unique, almost anise perfume. All right. We're okay. going to do a smell test here. Look Excuse out. me, Graham. I'm yeah. just going to reach over. Stephen da-da-da-da. is. Da-da. Smell test time. He's, he's taken this plant into his own plant jungle. I'm sorry, Graham. I can hardly smell it. <laughs> that's probably just my nose. It's uh, we're, we're sitting in an air-conditioned studio is here. That yeah, that's true. Yes, and on a on a really it's a little bit more in the fresher flower. 
really perhaps, but it's, it's certainly not an overbearingly strong no, scent. It's no. it's very light, yes. but it is a you know for people who like their pink roses, it's a very nice soft yes. shade. Mm. So, yes. And does it hold up to the sun reasonably well? The flowers it does, yes. Mm. Um, of course, we've had the test with the really hot weather, and mm. um, we've got about. 30 plants in the nursery, and they've held up very well. Good. All right, so it's obviously a good one for Australian conditions then. Yes. Yes. So there you go, bionic beauty. Bred by the famous Milan people who bred the famous peace rose. Right. Yes. Well, it's got some well, history. There, yeah, yeah so there, there's a bit of uh, sort of background there. That's yes. good. Yeah, yes. excellent. All right, so there you go. Bionic beauty, obviously the one that we have to be looking out for next. Yes. Stephen. All right. Uh, well, I might as well finish off with the ones on this side of the microphone. Not that anybody at home knows that. That way I might be able to see you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that way you might. Now, if you look at the top of the leaves of this particular plant, um, it has the weirdest variegation known to man, almost. This is actually a kiwi fruit, if you call them a kiwi fruit. I prefer to call them Chinese gooseberries because that's what they were. Uh, the New Zealanders jumped on board and turned the little furry fellas into the I don't the know how they got away with that. Yeah, it was very clever. Good marketing. Oh, excellent they, yeah, marketing. Excellent marketing. Extremely yes. clever. And, and the Aussies, they caught them, got, got the Aussies uh, beaten on that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, although I might add they did come unstuck when they tried to rebrand Waratahs as Kiwi Roses. Nobody accepted that, so no, it seems to have disappeared. Yes. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, this is one of the kiwi fruit group, uh, or actinidia, and the actinidias are all Asian vines. They're deciduous, uh, and some of them have this weird characteristic of producing variegation on the leaves. It's a natural variegation. It's not a viral variegation. Um, and this one's one called actinidia uh, tetramera subspecies maloides which is quite a mouthful. It is. Um, and the leaves become white-tipped. It looks like somebody's dipped them in paint. So you've got this sort of half the end of the leaf is white. But not all the leaves will have the variegation. So you get this sort of weird mixture mm. of, uh, of variegation through it. Uh, it's just finished flowering. It had quite cute little pink droopy flowers on it. As far as I know, we haven't got boy and girl ones in this country, so we don't get any fruit on them. But all of the actinidias produce edible fruit, although some of them are quite small. And it would be really fun if somebody was able to manage to get both male and female forms. I don't even know whether this is a boy or a girl one. I meant to check when it was in flower and, you know, go in and be personal with it and find out whether it was a boy or a girl. Um, and I How forgot... do you do that with a plant? Oh, come on, Graham. <laughs> you know about stamens. Um, okay. And um, so so, yeah, so we haven't got both sexes here, so we're unlikely to get the fruit, and I don't think this will cross with the commercial actinidias. Um, so I don't think a boy version of the commercial one would pollinate this if it turned out to be a female version. Um, but it's a very light, airy climber. doesn't want to be in the hottest, dry spot you can find, but it's reasonably hardy. And, of course, variegated foliage, even on a deciduous plant, is going to be there for eight or nine months of the year, whereas flowers are only there for a very short time. So this would give great value growing on a screen or a fence or... Uh, it's light enough that you could actually grow it with another climber, so I can imagine this growing through a rose, growing over a rose arch, yeah, um, yeah. perhaps a red rose with mm-hmm. the white variegated foliage going through it, yeah. or a, a, a pink and white combination for those who like something more subtle. Could yes. work. Over a pergola. Over a pergola. Pergola. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Or, or a gazebo. Um, <laughs> And so, yes, so that's uh, um, a Chinese gooseberry relative, which I think is really quite weird and interesting and different. I I actually find that variegation really weird. It is. It's it's something you've got to get your head around. And there's actually a more famous species called Actinidia columicta, which gets really big leaves, and the ends of its leaves can be white 
and or pink. Oh. So you get this variegation. Some leaves will be green. Yeah. Some leaves will have half pink and half green. Some leaves will be half white and half green. Others will just have tiny tips on the leaves. Right. So there's no continuity in the variegation. And, in fact, with Colomicta, it doesn't variegate till it gets to a certain size. Right. So when you're trying to sell one to somebody and it's all green and you say, oh, you know, and they see it in an Irish garden or an English garden or something, and they think you're having them on. Yep. Because it doesn't throw variegation till it's been in the ground for okay. a couple of Years, but the trouble with Colomicta is it's quite a it's quite a delicate vine. It can be quite hard to grow. This one seems to be hardier. Okay. So I think the Tetramira one is probably the better option for most keen gardeners. But the Colomicta is sort of the creme de la creme mm. of variegated actinidias, and it's certainly worth growing if you've got a gentle spot where it gets adequate light but doesn't get the hot sun and the hot winds and and all that sort of stuff because it comes from Japan and doesn't mm. really cope well with Australian droughty conditions in summer. Funnily enough. And presumably the variegation is quite stable. Oh, yeah, yeah, because it's not a viral thing. Yep. It's, it's actually it's, part of it's the plant. part maker. of the plant, but, yeah. yeah. And so although with Colomicta it doesn't start to variegate till it gets to a certain size, once it variegates it will do it every it year. It doesn't revert. No, then, it doesn't yeah. go back to the green, although yep. you have your green leaves all yes, through Yes, of course. Of so, course. But, it, yeah, I think they're fascinating plants, and I would yeah. love it if we had both male and female forms because there are a lot of people out there that are really happy to grow things if they know they have some edibility, even if it's only mildly so mm. so I'd love to be able to sell them both male and female forms of those because they're so highly ornamental and if you could actually get the berries as well it would be rather fun mm. okay we'll go oh, to we've our got a caller yes we'll go to our first caller we have uh, Laura in North Melbourne good morning Laura good morning disaster with my tomato plant is half bright yellow that does sound like disaster, um, uh, I'm sorry to say. Uh, I would put most of the problems that people are having down to any vegetable at the moment, actually, is just to the weather. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's been so up and down and all over the place. I mean, my sweet corn's still only about two inches out of the ground, and it's been there for weeks. Mm. Um, I mean, it will start to hit its straps in due course. And if, in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have sown my sweet corn till about now. Um, but I put it in rather too early, uh, or not too early for a normal year. No, because normal. Normally, I would have put it in when I put exactly. it in. Um, but I think you'll find it's just a weather-related thing. Now, it may well grow through it uh, as the weather settles down a bit more and we get some more constantly warm weather. Um, but there's probably not a lot you can do. You could give it some seaweed and that sort of thing and right. uh, see if that helps it along. Um, but keep in mind, at the end of the day, with something like a tomato plant, it's an annual anyway, yeah. and if all things fail... You pull it out. I know. <laughs> and, you know, and you look, you'll get your good years with tomatoes. Like, I mean, I had a really bad broad bean year this year. My broad beans, for some reason or another, decided to get covered in rust. Oh, and it was oh. just, I've never had that problem to any extent before. I've always got the odd little bit of rust on them. But this year it was just awful. We only got about two crops, maybe three pickings mm. from them. And they're still standing there, but they look absolutely dreadful. And the pods that are still on them are all covered in rust. And you break them open, the seeds are no good. Oh, pull uh, them out. Yeah, so it's just a matter of me finding, you know, half a morning to get stuck in and clean out the broad bean bed. Uh, but there's always next year. Yes, so with vegetables, I don't get myself too worked up, although it's always nice to have a good crop of tomatoes. Mm. Um, but it's weather related, I'm almost positive. Would giving it Epsom salts help? Because well, look, it probably won't do any great harm, but whether it'll do any real good oh, is, right. you know, I mean, not all plants respond to Epsom salts in any oh. particular positive way. Um, but if it made you feel better, you probably can't do any harm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, so it could you. be a placebo for you. <laughs> 
Okay, then. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. Yes, it's going to be an interesting year in the vegetable garden, I think. I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So I'm not sure how things are going to react, but yes. anyhow. There's yes. an enormous amount of mildew around on, on tomatoes too. I've had some tomatoes mm. that have really got whacked with mildew. Yeah, yeah fact, there's a lot gonna, of fungal things around. Mm. Uh, I, have, I grow a couple of, dare I say, ornamental oxalis, a couple of the summer growing ones, which tend to get a... A brown or bright orange rust under their leaves. Yes. Uh, and they've copped it badly this year. I've actually sprayed them with some fungicide because they were so bad. I thought, oh, I've got to do something. I'm never going to sell them if they look like this. Yep. Um, and that seems to be dealing with the issue. Um, but um, I don't think I've ever sprayed my oxalis before, but because there's, you know, this really damp environment, a lot of these rusts and mildews and things are having a wonderful old time mm. of it. Mm. So, but certainly with things that are ephemeral plants, I don't get myself too worked up about it. Um, I mean, I haven't even zone, zoned, haven't even sown my zucchinis or squash yet because I figured it's been so damp and cool, oh, you know, yes. why bother? Well, so speaking after Christmas probably for those, I reckon, and I'll still get a crop. You'll speaking get a crop, about yeah. oxalis that people want to get rid of their garden, have you uh, heard, Stephen, about um, using things like Roundup but using half-strength Roundup? No. no, 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 I haven't. Oh. Uh, I mean, and Roundup. I want to. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to avoid the product as much as possible. I mean, mm. I would still use it as a paint-on thing for a stump of a tree I've cut down that I know to be a vicious sucker, mm-hmm. because it's about the only way you're going to deal with that tree is to just paint. I the top would of the never stump. spray it ever. Yeah, I've got to the point where I'm not spraying Roundup no. anymore. Um, but and yeah. certainly nowhere near edibles. No, no, I wouldn't take it near the veggie garden, that's for sure. But um, it may well work. But, I mean, oxalis is one of those things that is very clever. And you cert- if I could knock something out with one application of something, I'd feel more confident about it. But if I know I've got to go back again and again, then you're in a routine where you're going to be pumping this stuff into your that's right. garden on a regular yeah. basis. And that's why I'd still use it as a stump killer because uh, it's very efficient at that. And you are targeting just one spot with it, mm. uh, and you don't need to do, ever do it again. So that's, that's just right. a once application. But, of course, there's still broad acres spreading the damn stuff, and there's still breeding plants that are Roundup ready. And, oh. you know, so whatever Roundup we're using in the um, home environment is just a, a drop in the bucket compared to what agriculture's still doing with it out there, we, uh, frighteningly. We, we had a gentleman that, that um, came down from Queensland um, and did a lot of gardening help and counselling. Uh, from Queensland, and um, he actually came down about four or five times. He, he, mm. he volunteered, and Rotary in the Finnish sponsored him, and he said that he's had some success with oxalis liming around the oxalis. Yeah, well, oxalis doesn't like an, uh, uh, an alkaline soil, so that mm. would make sense. You, yeah. It's always much more vicious and vigorous in an in a acid soil. Mm. So lime could be mm. a... At least a control. I don't know about an eradicant, mm. really. Mm. Uh, but then in the end of the day, what we should be doing in gardens is, in fact, controlling, not necessarily eradicating. And that goes for most things. Mm. You know, we don't need to eradicate something because if we eradicate something, we're probably getting rid of the food source for something else that we don't want to eradicate. That's right. that's um, right. And so if we can find a garden balance with things, um, that's probably a far better thing that we should be aiming towards mm. than complete and utter annihilation of exactly, anything. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, Roundup is one of those things I think we need to get more and more aware of mm. because there's certainly issues showing up with it that some years ago people 
were quite certain wasn't an issue, but then they said that with DDT too. That's right. Mm. You know, so nearly all of these wonder chemicals that come along, they seem like a good idea at the time until a little bit goes on and then you find out that somebody's dying from some dreadful disease that is pinned back to that very thing that was supposed to be quite benign. Or that we're knocking off a whole lot of beneficial insects. Yeah, and, you yeah, know. yeah, so, yeah, so the... Thumb and forefinger is, is as good a way of dealing with most insects as, uh, as anything. Mm. Uh, I'm happy to do that. If I've got a real bad infestation of aphids on something, I'm just as likely to go over and prune it, mm. take the aphids away, um, uh, or give them a good bath with a strong pressure hose. Um, all I want to do is keep things ticking over until the plants are strong enough to deal with the insect problem themselves to a large extent. Exactly. You know, so, yes, chemicals are one of those things that I try and avoid as much mm. as possible. Um, and I don't see myself as an avid greenie, but I just don't want to engage with things that might be a problem. Mm. Uh, I mean, if I was an avid greenie, I'd get rid of the car as well. And well, I can't really live without it yet, yet at the moment. <laughs> and, in fact, you're probably pouring more toxic stuff into the atmosphere with your car than you do with most garden chemicals, but that's another story. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, I think we'll, we'll, we'll yes, leave, leave it there that for, another, yes, for another day. <laughs> that could go on for a long time. Oh, yes, it could. Yep, it could. Yep. Okay, we've got a, another caller. We'll go to uh, Ken in Sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, everybody. All the best for Christmas and New Year. Oh, and, and to you, and Ken. To you, Ken. And, and don't we need it. Look, living in the western suburbs, there's a place called New Farm Chemicals, Mm, yes, and I know about another place them. called Monsanto who produce yes. um, 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T. There's one component, Agent Orange, as one component as Agent Orange, and that's what people are spraying. Mm. I've never sprayed anything in my garden at all. Mm. Well, if you've got a good balance in your garden and you mm. don't become an absolute fanatic about one group of plants, and that's where people come unstuck. I mean, if you become the passionate dahlia grower or the passionate whatever grower and you're growing nothing else but one plant in your garden... Then you're in trouble. Then you're opening yourself up for all sorts of yep. issues. Uh, when you have a nice balance of plant material in your garden, I mean, if something goes wrong with something, it's not the end of the world because it only went wrong with that plant. Mm. That's, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And when it spreads... And we had huge blues here, and uh, <laughs> I had um, New Farm Chemicals and Monsanto knocking on my door and saying... Oh, you're important. We'll take you to court. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. And I said, please do it, because we should be bringing it out. And I'm in the Anyway... Same to you, Ken, and I'm glad to see that you haven't lost your um, your, your mojo and you're out there dealing with people. <laughs> your fighting spirit. Your fighting spirit is still uh, there. Come from a good Irish background, I had people, I had wonderful parents who stood up for their rights and what they believed in. Good. Um, yep. It's come on to me. Well, well done. It served you well, Ken. Keep and it I up. I wish you well too, and all the listeners too. All right. Well, thank Thanks you very for your support. Okay. Bye. Because that does raise the issue, of course, that we've only got one more program before Christmas that I'll be on, which yes, is the 23rd. That's right. And then we break for all of January. We do. Yeah. We've, we've been doing this for the last few years now mm. because, um, firstly, it's very hard for me to get together a team of volunteers when um, a lot of people are away. Exactly. That's and and you break. need a break. I need a break. I do get weary by the end of the year. Yeah. But the other thing is that, that those of us who have gardens... 
This is the hottest time of the year and we really do need to be trying to keep yeah. up with watering the garden. Exactly. With your nursery, you've got to keep up water. Yeah. I mean, we can't... So if we've got to get up at six in the morning, it's better to be out watering than driving down to 3CR. Sorry, but exactly. there you go. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, um, yes, but we will we will definitely be back, starting back first Sunday in February. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're taking our, our annual break, which will be... Our last show is in two weeks' time, which, mm. as Stephen said, the 23rd. Yeah, so right up to Christmas, so... We're going right to up there. to Christmas, yeah. yep, and uh, and then a break until February, and yeah. then we'll be back for a whole another year of lots of exciting gardening talkback. Yep. Well, yep. I will say to you this: that my dear father said often that you know, son, holidays, those conditions were hard fought for. Mm. Do you realise that? He said that's history, but we tend to forget history. Yeah, although we didn't fight for the holidays with 3CR, we just told them they're not coming in in January. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good, it's a good point to have a holiday break. Mm. And he also said, you know, Saturdays and Sundays were hard fought for too, son. Oh, mm. yes. Mm. Fair enough. Yes, yeah, mine's are Wednesdays and Thursdays, but yep. anyhow, it doesn't matter. I still try and get my days off during the week so that you do have to refresh yourself. You can't be working seven days a week. You and can't. the older you get, the harder it is to exactly. work seven days a week. That's exactly yeah. right. So, yeah. and you know, me, in my advanced years as I am, um, you know, I've got to look after myself. Now. Stephen, you're a spring chicken compared to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, all things are comparative. In, in fact, you're the, you're the youngest in the room, Stephen. Oh, I hate to say. Uh, so. yeah, well, actually, there's a visitor here that is younger than me, but that's only oh, that's, right. You know, okay. That person. Well, you can exist. compete for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, we do have our phones up and running, so uh, if you'd like to phone in and ask a gardening question this morning, we've got Stephen Ryan and Graham Sargent in. The studio, so if you'd like to ask a, a question, do give us a call 94190155, or if you'd like to have uh, a chat to Louise on the outside line, 94198377. Okay, Stephen, let's All move right. on to. Well, actually, else. I just realised something. We were talking about the Parthenocissus before, which yep. is in the grapevine family, and actually. It's taken over a bit on today's uh, plant groups because here we have another one. Okay. And this is actually a vitus, so it's a true grapevine, but it's vitus coignetii, and I'm not sure that's how you should be pronouncing it, but my Latinized French is awful because uh, it was named after a French botanist and with a Latin ending, and I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But anyhow, it's vitus coignetii, um, so it's C-I-O-G-N-E-T-I-A-E, um, and it's commonly known as the glory vine and this is a young plant in a, a smallish pot but it has quite large leaves and the leaves will get even bigger on a well-grown plant they can be sort of you know size of a um, easily the size of a bread and butter plate uh, on a well-grown plant and it has this wonderful heavily veined textural quality to the leaves so it's got great gravitas and 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 presence um it clings by tendrils like a grapevine does so Mm -hmm. it will grab all to wire or branches or whatever to run up it comes from asia it can easily grow to in the old measurement 70 feet so you could cover quite a big area with it oh you could but if it's you know if you've got a pair of secateurs you can always make you know sort of arrangements Uh, i've actually got one on my back 
Pergola. Um, but I'm running along wires, and every winter I cut it back to just stubs uh, along the main stems that I've trained along the wires. So by midsummer, it's leapt across, and it gives wonderful shade. And then in the winter, I trim it all back to the main leaders that are running along the wires, and so that lets all the winter light in. Mm. Um, And it's a beautiful vine. It seems to be becoming popular. There's quite a few people who ring me about it and ask about it. Uh, So it's obviously been in some magazines or something. People have sort of started to wake up to this plant. Uh, the problem with it is, although it's quite vigorous and, and, and can grow quite large and is not particularly hard to grow, although it doesn't like to be deadly dry, um, it's not actually that easy to propagate. So you don't actually see it out for sale all that often. This is one I grew from a cutting last spring. Uh, so it would have been put in about this time of the year last year as a softwood cutting. Uh, and it's now already about 30, 60 centimetres tall. Get that out of the pot and into the ground. Even now, if you watered it well, I would hope by the autumn it would be the top of a pole uh, on any sort of shade structure that you've got going. So it can grow quite quickly. Uh, but like all climbers, uh, they're like puppies. They're not just for Christmas. So you've got to manage them and make them do what you want, particularly in the initial stages so that you build the right framework mm. so you don't end up with this mess of stuff and you don't know what to do with it. Mm. So if you train it properly, it can be a really, really useful climber. So that's Vitus coignetii. Yet another grapevine relative, and I've got another one we'll talk about as well. So I've actually brought down three different plants from three different genera, but all within the grapevine family. Uh, it's got some wonderful plants in it, so mm. it is definitely worthwhile um, uh, sussing out, I think. So, so that's Vitus coignetii, the Chinese flory vine. We only, it, it actually has boy and girl forms, which I only just sort of worked out comparatively recently because it flowers it gets little green flowers on it and I was umming and ahhing about it wondering why it never set any seed because most of the other grapevine relatives don't need a cross pollinator they Mm. pollinate themselves and somebody rang up and said you wouldn't have a girl one and I went a girl one and I went oh any wonder I'm not getting any berries on it so it can't self-seed so or, yeah. or anything because we only seem to have the one sex that everybody's propagating from. Okay. Uh, in fact, it probably all dates back to one original introduction of the plant at some mm. stage or another. But there is a really weird thing about this particular plant. Um, if you're growing it as a commercial nurseryman in Melbourne, you're not allowed to sell it outside the metropolitan area. Oh. The powers that be have decided that there might be some grapevine we, uh, disease issue. And yet it's been growing at Mount Macedon for the last 100 years, to my knowledge. Not that I remember back 100 years, but I know there were plants that were there that long ago. Um, And before I worked out how to propagate it, uh, I used to buy it in. I'd get it in small pots from one of the nurseries in Melbourne. And I ordered it one day and they said, oh, we don't send out of Melbourne Metropolitan anymore. But there was a nursery in Gisborne who could buy it because it was seen as Metropolitan. (laughs) So, I mean, the law's a bit of an ass, really, when you think about it. I mean, you know, why could somebody in Gisborne, 10 minutes away, buy a plant from a wholesaler that I wasn't allowed to buy? And that nursery in Gisborne could be selling to exactly the same clients as I would be selling to, so the plant would be moving outside Gisborne up into... The grapevine area, potentially. You know, so... uh, So is is this the only grapevine that's under these regulations? As far as I know. And I can't figure... How come? Why? It makes no logical sense to me at all. I've got no idea why this rule came in. But there is a a major wholesaler in Melbourne that still grows it, but they can only sell it around Metropolitan Melbourne. They even put it on their their catalogue, Metro Sales Only. (laughs) 
Uh, and I think you well, need a go between. Well, well, I did with the Melbourne to, address. I used to do that, <laughs> but now I don't bother. I think well, I've been growing it in my own garden for years. I've now worked out how to propagate it. I get reasonably good strikes every year now. I grow enough to keep me supported. So, and it's from locally produced stock from lo- a long way back. So it's not like I've introduced it to no, the no, area. No, 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 um, no. And um, so if anybody from the authorities comes in to talk to me after they might do after this morning's program, um, I can't quite see why I would get into trouble for growing something that's been up there for 100 years. And it's never caused any problems, obviously. No, it never has. No. So, and we've got grapevine industries all around us making wonderful wines and uh, all that sort of stuff. And my Vitus Cognetii has had no impact whatsoever. Mm. So there you go. So that's how, a, an aside. That is. It's, it's sometimes the the law does sort of. You've got to query it sometimes in your you head. Do, you do. You have to. Why this? You know, why have they picked on that specific one in the grapevine family? As opposed to anything else. I mean, I can buy in commercial grapevines if I want them mm. and sell them from my nursery. Yeah. So why not Vitus Coignetii? Very strange. But anyhow, enough of my nonsense. We have no more calls coming in yet, so we might as well actually finish the grapevine family. I think yes, let's do idea. that. Here we have one that I'm particularly fond of, and this is in yet another genus in the family, uh, and it's in the genus Ampelopsis. And this one is Ampelopsis Akin. I love that name. Ampelopsis, yes, yes. there's something fun about <laughs> it, isn't it? Good fun. Yeah. Uh, and this one is Akin, this is, uh, Ampelopsis Aconitifolia. So it has leaves like an aconite, which is the monkshood. So anybody who grows monkshood in their garden would know what the leaves look like. Uh, it has a lovely, I think, filigreed, interesting leaf form. That's what I grow it for mainly. Beautiful it, leaf. It gets little tiny berries, uh, that can be in shades of green through yellow to orange to almost ambery reds. So the berries are quite pretty. The leaves go bright yellow before they shed in the autumn. But I use this plant as something to grow on things like obelisks or up through a small shrub or tree because you can prune it back really hard each year, take most of the biomass away and then start it off again. So if you had a metal obelisk Mm -hmm. or something in the garden, you could let this run up through it in the summer. When it finishes fruiting in the autumn, you just chop it back really hard uh, and then it's managed for the rest of the season and then you let it come up from low down again the, the following spring and it's just such a pretty leaf shape so ampelopsis mm. aconitifolia how high can it get Steve? oh look if you didn't prune it back it would slowly keep getting taller but it will end up with bare legs at the bottom mm. uh, so most of its foliage would sort of migrate further up um, it could if you didn't prune it it could get to probably six to ten meters mm. i suppose in in size but i keep mine on about an eight foot obelisk in the garden at home and I'd, every winter I just prune it back quite hard and then it runs up through the obelisk in the, in the summer and it falls off the outside of it and stuff and looks rather beautiful, uh, sets some fruit, uh, drops its leaves and then off I go again and chop it all back. Do the leaves cover up, colour up in the autumn? Yeah, yellow. Oh, okay. Yeah, so quite a nice yellow. It's not, mm. and it's funny because people tend to forget about yellow as a good autumn colour because they're out there looking for the oranges and reds mm. all the time. Mm. But you need the yellows to show off the oranges and reds. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, so I like the fact yeah. that it has yellow autumn foliage and its berries being sort of in the green through yellow to amber colours and the yellow foliage is actually quite a nice combination. Mm. So uh, this one came my way years ago. As far as I know, I'm the only one in the country growing it. So don't go into anybody else's nursery looking for Ampelopsis aconitifolia because I don't think you'll get it anywhere else. Mm. And I only grow a few of them a year. Again, it's one of those ones that it's taken me a little while to work out the best propagating technique of it. Uh, But I think I've got my head around it now. Uh, But I think it's a remarkably pretty and interesting 
climbing plant again in the grapevine family. So how's that? Three different grapevines this morning. Wow. So we're still going to do another one? Uh, no, no, we're, we're going to go. We've got a query oh. from the outside line. Yep. Uh, Margaret in Hawthorne, uh, she wants to know why her native frangipani has never flowered. It's a hymenosporum uh, flavum nana, nana? Yeah, the small version. The small version. It surprises me a wee bit because the dwarf version is normally comparatively quick to flower. Um, and because it is the cultivar and not the wild species, I was immediately going to say, oh, of course, if it's been seedling raised, it may have to go through a, a juvenile form. No, and I, lots I of believe things she do. bought it from Karanga. Yeah, and so it would have been a vegetatively propagated plant. Yes. So it should be flowering and it should have flowered quite young. Mm. Uh, of course, there are some things in life that one can never find the reason for. So, and this could be one of them. Um, it may or may not be getting enough light. I mean, they'll tolerate a bit of shade, but they don't want to be in heavy shade. Um, so th- it would be worth looking into that. Um, uh, certainly it's not one of those plants that requires potash or anything like that in any sort of amount, so I can't imagine that it's a lack of something necessarily. Um, but sometimes it's just one of those mysteries in life that one has to accept. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's getting enough light, I'd be surprised if it won't flower eventually. It so, may just be sulking for a little while. Yeah, so it may be worthwhile waiting. Did she tell us how long she's had it? Uh, no. Yeah, see, it, she may, like some people, be being a bit impatient you know that's that's often the the way these things work you know people assume that three or four years is more than enough time to have something do its thing but sometimes well it's you not. and i have waited oh god yes. a long time for some things to yeah well actually <laughs> i i broke open a bottle of bubbles uh, only this year because i had one of my giant poyas flower in the garden at home that had been growing in the garden for several years probably yep. eight or ten years yep. uh with this great big spiky pineapple top like foliage and suddenly it sent up a 14 foot flower spike this year and turned out not to be the species i'd planted <laughs> Which sometimes happens. Uh, but it turned out to be Poya chiliensis with yellow flowers <laughs> and this huge, big, giant spike. And I've been enjoying the plant for years. It didn't really worry me that it wasn't in flower, but it would have, you know, I've always thought, oh, one day my Poya will flower, and it did. Um, and, you know, I was lucky. I didn't die first. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so, yeah, so some things you've just got to be patient with and they will work in their own time. But having said all of that, too, life is short, and if something is not performing as you wish... Sometimes it's often better to cut your losses and start again because Mm. you can't buy time. So if you've planted something that isn't performing well, either not flowering or not growing well or whatever, uh, I applaud your patience if you've sat with something for donkey's years and it's never done anything, uh, but maybe it's time to cut losses too. But, you know, if we don't know how old the hymenosporum is, um, it's, uh, it's a little hard to say whether you're not just being a little impatient with it. But they normally flower quite young, that dwarf form. Uh, yeah. I'm surprised it hasn't I'm, I'm surprised too. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Sorry we can't be more sort of specific. I'd love to be able to say to some people, yes, you do this and you do it at the, you know, the full moon uh, on the first Thursday of the month or whatever and everything will and be bingo. fine. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, but you can't do those things no, in horticulture. Exactly, exactly. Um, we also have uh, Priscilla from East Malvern uh, wants to ask about her Wygelia. She pruned it after flowering. Now it's growing very large again. Should she prune again? No. The pruning of Wygela is all about freshening up the bush. And if you, and when you do prune it, because they've got a big root system and you've taken a lot of top off, and Graham will, uh, I'm sure, agree with me when it comes to roses, the harder you prune some things, the more vigorously they grow after that, the that, pruning. That's for sure. So you're not really 
controlling the size of the plant. The idea mm, is what you're doing exactly. is you're refurbishing the plant and making it fresh and young again. And if, um, if Priscilla prunes it back again now, she's very likely then to take off all of next year's flowers. Yep. So leave it alone, let it settle down again. Probably don't prune it every year because they're one of those plants that don't require it. Uh, and it will just settle down again and flower its head off for the next few years. And then you go and give it the, the chop. The big uh, chop. And that will refurbish it and make it all fresh and young again. So mm. no, I wouldn't reprune. Mm. Well, we had a very interesting experience with that, Stephen, because we've had probably about 140 frosts at our place this year. It has been a very frosty sort of winter spring, hasn't it? Mm, We We didn't have any frosts in the autumn. We had a a, a very big bed of about 40 roses of the rose Casanova, and for all intents and purposes, they were just burnt right off. Oh, so he's not as vigorous as you thought, that Casanova. (laughs) (laughs) No, we won't go into that one. (laughs) And... um, so we then did, did some work very close to the to the butt to the ground. Yeah. So you cut them really, really hard, and and they're now um, are nearly um, a foot eighteen inches high, and they've just shot up mm-hmm. because you've got that massive root mm. base underneath. Yeah. That really wants to get up and go. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, they will. So a classic so, yeah. example of what you were just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So if you want to control something, pruning is not always the way to do it. And certainly, if you've got something that's really vigorous, heavy pruning just makes it even more vigorous. Mm. If you've got something weak, on the other hand, if you prune it really hard, that often stimulates it to actually put some decent growth on. Mm. So certainly with roses, I've always been under the impression that your big strong ones you prune lightly, mm. your weak ones you prune hard, which mm. seems counterintuitive, mm. but it sort of works. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So, and certainly with a wajila, I wouldn't want to reprune it twice in the one year oh, because no. you'd lose the flowers. Yep, yep. Okay, we're going to our good friend Gwen online. Good morning, Gwen. Good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? morning? I'm very well, thank you. And you? Oh, can't complain. No, no, no. If if it's any better, I'd be dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Firstly, a couple of things. Um, I rang up a few minutes ago and my line dropped out. uh, And so I rang again and, of course, I missed some of the, the comments. Well, I thought I had. But when I came on for the second time... I seem to be where I was when I got the line cut out the first time. Deja vu. We we (laughs) have had a few issues this morning with the phone line and the computer. I was just letting you know that, Pam, because... um, you know, I'm not sure whether the sec- seven seconds thing has dropped out or whatever. Uh, anyway. No, you wouldn't be able to talk to us if it had. Mm. Oh, well, I'll, I'll assume that it has and I'm here. Okay. Yes, good. Um, I was going to agree with everything Stephen said about the dwarf native frangipani. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I would add is that I do know plants of that dwarf variety that have been very reluctant to flower. Ooh. Well, so oh, that's something I'm not familiar with. So I'd say to our caller, don't slash your wrist. <laughs> Yeah. And it's not her fault. No, perhaps lie a tomahawk next to the plant oh, and yeah. speak very firmly with it. That right. always works. Yeah, and then I'd say do what Stephen um, recommends often. If it's not performing in the long term, maybe I, we didn't know how old it was, obviously. No, but no. if it continues to not perform, um, you know, take the tomahawk to it. Yeah. Um, you know, don't persevere forever because you're not the only one who has had difficulty in that particular... Uh, some of them flower brilliantly. Yeah, I've seen some fabulous ones that seem to be yeah. quite young, massive flowers. Yeah. So, the, yeah. There's an odd, odd one in the batch, or I'm not quite sure what the percentage might be, but there are plants that um, have been known to be very reluctant to flower from that dwarf form. Yeah. But if people don't know the native frangipani, it's a tree that's in flower now, 
with the most fragrant... Oh, um, heavenly. ...flowers start off cream and then they go through all the shades of yellow to a burnt orange. Mm. And, and I love tic- flowers that change colour on a plant because they're not always out together, so you get that lovely mixture. <laughs> yeah, and if you sort of smell it and you think, well, that doesn't smell much like frangipani, go back in the evening because some plants are very clever... And it's moth-pollinated. Yes. And in the evening, it smells divine. It knows it's moths. <laughs> it knows it's moths. It does. It <laughs> does. Yes, yes. Um, the other reason that I mainly was ringing up to say was um, you, might, you folk in there would undoubtedly have suggestions for people for Christmas gifts to gardeners. I mean, we all know people who've got heaps of stuff and mm. you think, what on earth can they give them? Well, I mean, I'm sure Graham's got... Ideas for a roses. rose bush, I think, is one of Graham's suggestions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Stephen might even and we've got heaps of stuff with them. A ticket to go on a trip. Yes, well, yes, go, phew, come on a trip to to Madagascar with me next year. Yeah, that's or in right. fact, go on the ASA tour to the south of France. You'll see exactly. lots of roses and, and the peonies there. The other thing there. that I've found has been very welcome over the years. You have to hurry up and do it today if you want to, but grab a pot and some good potting mix. Uh, and a punnet of uh, seeds you could give people, but a punnet of, um, say, mixed colour lettuces or something, pop them up into a pot, and in three weeks' time, you know, they'll be looking quite nice to give. And there's nothing nicer than just stepping outside the back door and picking some lettuce leaves to grow, go with your meal in the evening. Goes down well with the Christmas pudding and the turkey. <laughs> Well, but by the time you get to evening, you don't feel like very much more yes. than some lettuce leaves. Yes, well, exactly. You can go with the cold leftovers. Yes. <laughs> exactly, yes. All righty, that was it. I'll leave you to it. Okay, right. good to hear from you, Gwen. Have a lovely Christmas. Thanks. Bye. All right. We are running through until 9.15, so if you'd like to uh, jump on the phone and give us a call, we'd love to hear from you. That number again, 94190155 to speak to Stephen or Graham, or if you'd like to have a chat on the outside line, 94198377. Okay, Stephen, we've All still right. got a couple to get through. All right, well, we're going to go into the hydrangea group. Next, uh, but we're st- oops, I'm getting tied up with the microphone here. Uh, but the first one is in fact another climber, so it's in the climbing sort of uh, genre that we've been talking about this morning. Uh, and this is a climbing hydrangea relative, which may or may not end up being dumped in with hydrangea. But for those who know their hydrangeas, they know that they have fertile flowers, which are little beady ones, and then you have sterile flowers that are normally around the outside of the flower head with large petal-like bracts. And in a hydrangea, the petal-like bracts have four bracts around the flower. This is another genus called Schizophragma, which has one bract around the sterile flowers. So you have one bract that hangs off the sterile flowers, and the sterile flowers are only there to attract the bees and other pollinators. So they say, you know, Hi, I'm here, there's flowers. And then they come in and they pollinate the fertile flowers. Now, the schizophragmas will possibly be dumped in with hydrangea anyway because the only difference is the fact that they have one bract right. instead of four. Yep. And now that they're able to count genes and chromosomes and all those things that I don't quite understand, um, they're finding out about relationships of plants that they didn't know before. So plant names are being thrown in the air and they're falling down all over the place. I have a gut feeling schizophragma will end up in hydrangea. They're self-clinging climbers like an ivy, so mm-hmm. they, they have aerial roots, so they will attach themselves to a wall or a fence or a tree trunk or whatever. Like the rest of the hydrangea clan, they do quite well in semi-shade to shade. 
Their foliage is smaller than the average garden hydrangea, and so they're not quite so water-hungry, but they still like a bit of moisture. They flower through the Christmas period. You get these quite nice-sized heads with the white bracted flowers around the outside and the little beady white ones in the middle. This particular one is one called, funnily enough, Schizophragma hydrangeoides. <laughs> so if it does get changed to a hydrangea, <laughs> it's going to be hydrangea <laughs> hydrangeoides, <laughs> which is wonderful. a serious piece of horticultural tautology. Um, and it has a, a soft grey green leaf with red veins in it, uh, which is really pretty. So the foliage is really nice. And then you get these quite large heads of creamy white flowers on it in the summer. And the flowers sit on the branches that sit out off the plant. They don't sit on the branches that run up the wall. So the branches that run up the wall, the climbing branches, are basically the juvenile form of the plant. When it gets old enough to start pushing out branches off the outside like an ivy does when it gets old, yep. that's the bits that flower. Right. So if somebody's growing one up a wall, don't cut the branches off that are sticking out. Right. I've had a few people who say, I can't get that damn thing to flower, and I prune it, and I do everything. I say, hold on, you prune it. What are you pruning? And they said, oh, those bits that come out off the outside of the plant, you know, I'm keeping it nice and neatly against the wall. Uh, and um, I say, well, there you go, all your flowers. You've just taken them all off. So it's the short branches that come out off the wall that flower. Um, they're one of the few groups of self-clinging, flowering, shade-tolerant climbers that there are. Mm. So if you're looking for something for a south wall uh, or on a, dare I say again, pergola uh, that's actually under the shade of a big tree or, you know, somewhere else in the garden where you've got a, a semi-shaded to shady aspect, there's not really many good flowering climbers that will do that. Mm. So the true climbing hydrangeas, the schizophragmas, and there are a couple of other genera that are not in hydrangea for similar sorts of reasons but possibly will end up in hydrangea. There's something from America called a decameria that is also same sort of habit. And there's another plant from China and Taiwan, I think, um, known as Pilostegia, which is an evergreen climbing hydrangea-ish plant. So there's a range of different forms out there, and there's several climbing hydrangeas, both evergreen and deciduous. So they're a really useful group of plants that most people unless they're keen gardeners and have already been exposed to these plants, don't even think about. Mm. And the problem with them is they fall between stools because if somebody comes in to buy a hydrangea, they're not coming in to buy a climbing plant. And if they've come in to buy a climbing plant, they haven't come in to buy a hydrangea. Mm. And so these plants tend not to be well-known because they are sort of... Yeah, they fall between stools, basically. Yep. Um, yep. But I think they're wonderful plants. Uh, one could look at them for all sorts of purposes, and because they're a self-clinging climber, they'll grow to the top of whatever they've got to grow on, and then they go into adult wood. So if you've got a six-foot paling fence, they'll grow up it, they'll go into adult wood, and they just sit there, basically. Uh, if you've got, I don't know, possibly Eureka Tower, and you decide that you want to grow something to the top, it might well do that. So it grows to the size of whatever it's got to grow on. Mm given time. Mm. And certainly some of these climbing hydrangea relatives, you see them in the wild where they grow up the sides of trees and things, and they'll grow up a 60 or 70 foot tree and be flowering right up in the top of its crown. So they can get huge if there's somewhere to grow them. Mm. But if you've got nothing to grow them on and you put them in the garden or in a big pot, they work like a sort of a lack shrub. So you don't actually even need to use them as climbers. And certainly if you, say, had a cut-off stump in the garden that you wanted to cover with something interesting, you could use one of these plants because they'll grow to the top of the stump and they'll just sit there like a bush. Mm. So I think they're a wonderful group of plants. Uh, they should be engaged with by more gardeners because I think they are fairly unique and, they, and their usages uh, are quite good in the garden. And as long as they're not really hot and dry, they're not that hard to grow. 
Some of them do take a while to start flowering, so they might be one of those things that you need to plant while you're young. Others will flower quite quickly, um, so it depends on which one you buy. Um, but I like the idea of planting um, Schizophragma integrifolia, which gets flower heads about 30 to 60 centimetres across, but can take 10 or 15 years to flower. Then you've got a reason to call a party. So, you know, it's, it's about growing things sometimes. It's not always about having things at their final point. Uh, I had an elderly friend years ago, and I've probably told this story before, but he was still sowing tree peony seed when he was 96. He never saw them flower. Of course he wasn't going to see them flower. He knew he wasn't going to see them flower, but he enjoyed the process of raising the peony seeds. Exactly. So, and I'm now benefiting, in fact, from Barney's tree peony (laughs) seeds. Mm. So somebody gets the benefit from it. So, yes, don't always plant something expecting that you're going to get instant impact because sometimes it's nice to have something that Mm. takes time. Within this whole range, Stephen... Um, is there any choice in, in colour? Not a lot. Most of them tend to be creamy white. There is a form of Schizophragma hydrangeoides called Rosea, which has palish pink colour in the flowers. Um, but it varies from season to season and aspect a little bit. Sometimes it's stronger in pink. Sometimes it's a bit sort of more wishy-washy. Uh, but they're pretty well basically all in shades of white, um, which is quite useful, actually, if you're growing things in the shade because you don't want deep or bright colours necessarily in the shade. You exactly. want light yep. colours that will stand out in the dark corners. Yep. So, yes, it's sort of unfortunate. Although, having said that, I remember reading a book once where there's apparently an evergreen climbing hydrangea that comes from the Philippines that has red bracts. Oh. I don't think it's ever come into cultivation. I can't remember what its name was. I read about it and lusted after it for a while and then realised that nobody seems to have even brought it into cultivation. Yep. So it was just mentioned in passing. Okay. But wouldn't that be something? That would be something. You know, an evergreen climbing hydrangea with red flowers? I think I could live with one of those. Oh, yes. Yeah. But I don't think it's in, in cultivation at yep. all. I don't even think it's being grown in the Philippines, let alone anywhere else. Yes. So I think it's still out there in the wild to be collected by some intrepid you know, sort of Harrison Ford type plant collector at some point or another. Mm. So, this, yes, this there's variety. lots out in the wild we haven't got. This variety you've got here, Stephen, will that take frost? Oh, yeah. Yeah, most of them are, are, are really cold hardy, uh, particularly the deciduous ones. Uh, although, having said that, I've seen some of the evergreen ones growing in gardens in England and places like that where they get pretty cold winters and they seem to cope quite well. Yeah. But, you know, they're pretty cold hardy. That shouldn't be an issue with them. You might get a little frost damage on them if you get a really late frost when they're actually already in full leaf, but mm. that can happen to a lot of plants. Mm. Um, but I think they're inherently pretty frost hardy. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Okay. We have had a little um, note from the outside line. Yes. Um, Heather in Camberwell um, has uh, rung in to let you know that some of the uh, some of the Facebook photos have got the wrong. Name yeah, I had a feeling that them. that could happen. Yeah, so you you need to remember what I said about a plant to pick up whether it's got the right name. Or I, the other thing is you could you could look at the name and Google it, and then you'll get yeah you'll the, get an image. You'll that, get an image, and then you'll know which yeah. one it yeah, goes. I, with. I sort of felt this could happen. I mean, I did send them in a certain order, and then I sent the names in I thought the same order, but you know I'm not blaming Liz. It's all right, Liz. You're not to blame. <laughs> 
but it could be your fault. Mm. <laughs> uh, but yes, it doesn't surprise me. And, and some of the names are long and complicated, and by the time she'd finished putting them up, it doesn't surprise me if something got a little muddled. As I say, it's, it's easy to sort that out. Yeah. So simply Google the name, you'll get an image come up, and, you and then say, you'll oh, know which one. one. Oh, that's that one. Yeah, good. Yep. All right, we'll have to try and work out another system so that when I do send my images in for Liz to put up, uh, yeah. that we can be confident that the... I don't know how you name your images on your phone. That's the problem as individual images. I don't know whether you can do that or not. Because what I've been doing is sending her all the pictures and then sending a list of the names uh, as Can we text. number them? Yeah, but how do you... Uh, well, I, I thought With they were... With a corresponding num- number. Yeah, how do you number the photos, though? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Anyhow, we'll work it through. We'll, Liz, we'll, you we'll might be able to help you with that. Yeah. At some stage or another, we'll Liz might that. have to give you a lesson. Yes, I need lots of lessons, particularly <laughs> when it comes to things technological-wise. I think it's very impressive that I'm managing to send the damn things in in the first place. I'm, I'm very impressed, David. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think I'm doing quite well, really. The other thing is we, I might get you to have a quick lesson with Virginia because mm. she's, when we first started the Facebook page... Yeah, she's quite good with that. She was quite good with that, so, mm. um, so maybe have a chat to her as well. Well, I'll be seeing her later this yes, morning. Yes, that's why I'm yes. thinking that. But whether we'll have time to... You, you, uh, it may will not. completely go out of your mind. I know quite, you won't think about probably. it. probably. I mean, yep. I've got lots to think about. I've got a, an avocado and mango salad to make for lunch today. Oh, right, and, okay. You know, lots of things are going on, you know. <laughs> I've got it's champagne Christmas. to get it's into Christmas. a fridge and, you know, yeah. you name it, we've got things happening today. Okay, okay. Before I forget... Get um, Graham, tell listeners: Are you going to be open um, over the New Year period? What What are the hours of the? No, for the first time ever. Oh, you're taking time we're off. Taking, uh, taking two weeks off, uh, right from Christmas, right through to the New Year. So it'll be uh, probably the twelfth, I think, of January yep. when you'll reopen. Yep. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. Mm. So people either need to get their rose hit before Christmas, or yes. they'll have to wait till well into January before yes. they can come and see you. Yes. And is it too late for people to order a rose to be sent as a gift? No. No, we're sending, still sending roses out um, pretty all right up till Christmas. Good. So if somebody decides they need a rose for Auntie Maud? Oh, no, look, sorry. I'm sorry. No, we, it we, won't get there. We, no, we yeah. have hassles with, with the, the mail. Um, a, week before, a week before Christmas, um, they'll, they'll, we can't mail them or we won't mail them. Yeah, so once we get to the week before Christmas, that's the end. That's it. That's the finish, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They'll have so to send them a So you've got just over a week rose. to get onto it. Yeah, yeah, so you need to do it fast. And, of course, if you get a complete influx from this morning's program, mm. you might struggle to get on top of it. Yeah, I, I, but I have noticed that things are easing off even now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yep. All right. I just thought we better we better make that clear yeah, so sure. for our listeners. Mm. Good yeah. idea. Okay. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we are uh, running through until 9.15, so you've got a, a few minutes there if you'd like to phone in and ask a gardening question this morning. That number again, 94190155, or on the outside line, 94198377. Now, Ruth uh, wants to ask Graham why the bark on a rose at their tennis club is peeling off from the base. The rose is called Remember Me. Remember me. Yeah. Um, He's forgotten her already. (laughs) 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 Um, The rose can form that bark. Yeah, old roses will get sort of peely bark, won't they? So if it's only the bark... Yeah. There's nothing really to worry about um, other than than keep up some liquid seaweed to it. 
um, no, it's not. A, it's not really normally a problem. Mm. Yeah, no, peeling bark would be all right. It's if the bark is peeling back to the cambium layer underneath, mm. then you'd start to worry yeah. about what's going on. Mm. Uh, but it, yeah, old rose bushes often get flaky, mm. peely, strippy bits of bark that peel off, don't yeah, they? Yeah, we've so, got quite a few in our garden that have been in there now for you know twenty five, thirty years, and they they get it. They get that really cust, crusty um, bark to them, which is really good because they withstand the heat. Mm. Um, uh, you know, it's a it's a mechanism that the plant has mm. to withstand that heat, especially in in the hot weather. Mm. Mm. I yeah. suspect Ruth might have been concerned because it's starting from the base, so she might have thought maybe mm. too yeah. much moisture or yeah, no, something around the base. I'd need to see it to feel confident yes. whether there's yeah. actually an issue, but it sounds to me like there isn't. No, no. Yeah, no. I'd say it's just a normal sort of. Rose barky yeah. thing going yes. on. It's yeah. never been never been an issue in, in my experience over the years. Mm. No. Okay. And you certainly don't remember a time where bark has peeled off to the cambium and lifted up. No. So I've mm. never seen that on a no. rose. So no. I'd just say that's all it is. Okay. Mm. Excellent. All yeah. right. Time for another plant. All right. Well, we were talking about hydrangeas, so we might as well actually talk about a proper one. Uh, this is one I imported some years ago. And it's the cutest little thing. Isn't I mean, it? the flowers will get slightly bigger than the one I bought in, uh, but it's always a tiny, dainty little hydrangea. I have never seen one like yeah. that. It's one of the hydrangea wow. serratas, which are a group of hydrangeas from Japan, and they make small bushes. They only get to about a metre, metre and a half, not quite as wide as they are tall. They have smallish leaves. They have little lace cap flowers, although you can get fully sterile ones that get pom pom flowers as well. And this is a Japanese selection called Kamachi. I don't know what Kamachi means. I should have looked it up. But... The sterile bracted flowers around the outside of the flower head are double. Yes. So you've got little double pink flowers on it, and it'll have little white fertile flowers in the middle. Uh, and it is just as cute as it it's is. A sweetie. It's uh, lovely. It would make a good pot plant because it doesn't grow terribly big. Uh, the leaves on these are thinner and less fleshy than the normal garden hydrangeas, the hydrangea macrophyllas. So although they don't like to get dry, they're, they're not as inclined to flag on a warm day as the garden hydrangea does. Um, sometimes their foliage colours quite well before it sheds in the autumn as well, which can okay. be another added bonus to the serrata type hydrangeas. Um, and yeah, I just think this is really sweet. So I, I thought I'd bring one in because it's just starting to flower in the nursery mm. at the moment. I mean, the flower head's not fully open yet, but the fact that it has double flowers around the outside of the, the oh, flower head. I think it's gorgeous. It's a sweet little thing. So, yeah, I imported it years ago from Heronswood Nursery in America. Okay. Because there was a Heronswood there as well as a Heronswood here to confuse right. people. Yeah. And the Heronswood there was at a place called Kingston uh, near Seattle. Uh, and it belonged to a very famous horticulturalist called Dan Hinckley, who is sort of a modern-day plant collector who's mm. been out into China and Taiwan mm. and clambering up mountainsides and collecting good forms of things for years. Uh, and he sold Heronswood Nursery to the Burpee um, chain of companies. Okay. And eventually they closed it up because a specialist nursery like that really wasn't part of their Yes, yes. Uh, but he's written some fantastic books. If you ever see any of Dan's oh, books look, out there, his writing is great. He's really quirky and interesting, and he, is. He, he writes with passion, and he and, and he's very opinionated. And I always like a good opinionated writer. Uh, in horticulture, writers tend to say it grows three feet and has white flowers. I want somebody to tell me it looks crap for three months of the mm. year or, yes, or, you know, the exactly. interesting things about the plant, not just its basic characteristics. Mm. Uh, and Dan will do that. He will tell you if he thinks it's rubbish or, or whatever. He has no sort of commercial imperative to make everything sound really good. Uh, so, yeah, so if you see any of his books out there, grab them because he's done one on perennials. He's done one on shrubs and vines. 
There's another one out there, and I'm trying to think what he's, the other one's about. I've had three of his books, and he, t- he talks about specific plants, and then he talks about his collecting them in the wild and, and all sorts of interesting trivia about them. So it's, it's really a read. It's not mm. just about learning about a plant. The only issue with Dan's books is that a lot of the plants he talks about we can't get. Mm. Which is so frustrating. You read about this fabulous plant and you think, oh, I'd love one of those, only to find out it's not in the country. Mm. But we don't engage enough with the American writers. We tend to know a lot about and engage with the English writers, uh, being the colonial thing that we are. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. You know, and so we get a lot of Christopher Lloyd and Beth Chatto and all of the well-known English writers, mm. but we don't get a lot of the American writers, and some of them are really quirky, interesting people uh, who write really well, and Dan is certainly up there with, with the best of them. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, so have a look at his stuff, and that's a plant I imported from his nursery, which I'm assuming he imported from a nursery in Japan somewhere, because it's a Japanese... It's a Japanese... Yeah, yeah, Japanese clone. So, Kamachi, and it's a really pretty little hydrangea, and if it's been properly labelled on the Facebook page, you'll be able to see what it looks like. Fantastic. Okay, we'll go to another caller. We have Anne out in Heidelberg. Good morning, Anne. Oh, hi. I'm just thinking about soil mm. and how to get really viable, healthy soil that, um, you know, keeps that viability and holds the moisture. Mm. So I put um, organic fertilizer on it, just yeah. pellets, and then I put compost, and then I put usually pea straw or sugarcane malt. Yeah. But I find still in the raised beds, particularly, um, it seems to dry out. So I've yeah. got wicking beds, and I'm trying to keep the reservoir underneath still. But how often should it? Should I be putting all this stuff on? Because I find that whatever I'm doing doesn't always necessarily keep the soil that lovely sort of soft, viable. In, in our Australian conditions in summer, even the best of soils are going to get dry and, and a bit powdery in summer and a bit hydrophobic as well. Um, there's not an awful lot you can do about it. I mean, you can put down wetting agents, uh, which will help, and they'll take moisture down inside. But some of the but wetting they've agents... Got chemi- are, they've got chemicals. Yeah, I was just going to say that. They're, they're, some of them are, but there are organic ones. So if you look out for the organic... Um, uh, wetting agents, you can use some of those. What was your base soil like? Uh, what did you start with? Clay, and I had to put a lot of... Um, Clay yeah. breaker stuff over yeah. the years. Uh, all right, well, I certainly wouldn't be using the gypsum and clay breakers anymore because you've got enough organic material in the soil there now and those things leach through the soil fairly quickly anyway. Um, but if you started with a clay-based soil, the other thing you can do that will help is to use a fine gravel or coarse sand mixed through the soil as well because of the clay base of the original part of the soil you also need some coarse granules through the soil as well to help moisture percolate through um, and that'll open it up yeah what, what i've got it i've i've got lots of stones because initially when i came to the place i didn't want to do any gardening so i kind of fixed everything there just about and put granitic sand and all sorts of river pebbles around. Mm. Well, the bigger I, river pebbles and things aren't going to necessarily help. They're not going to hurt, but they're not going to help. Um, no, but the smaller ones, when I dig down now in a lot of the garden beds, there's still quite a lot of those small, small um, yeah. 
Yeah, well, they should be doing some uh, useful uh, purpose as as regards to filtering moisture down. But look, I've spent the last 30 years creating soil in my garden, and by midsummer, it's hydrophobic. Mm. Um, No matter what I do, the gum trees suck it up from underneath, and the shrubs and plants in the garden suck it from the top. Um, And by midsummer, I can be out there watering, and I turn around and the water's running down the driveway. Uh, uh, and so I've just learnt to accept that this is what I've got to deal with by midsummer. Of course, if we get a good summer storm, it breaks the hydrophobicness of the soil, so the natural rain will actually do it. Um, yeah. But, you know, you can, you can only just do your best. You're obviously doing all the right things by the sounds of it to me. Um, yeah. I still might consider if I could get hold of quarter-inch or smaller scoria, Mm. putting some scoria into the garden because that is a rock form that is also porous and will help hold moisture. Mm. And it's also got natural minerals and trace elements in it because it's volcanic. Um, And surely there's still people out there with scoria driveways they want to get rid of, (laughs) seeing as they're no longer fashionable. Um, But I'd still be tempted to get some of that into the ground. But you can't really do much more than you're doing uh, except getting an organic wetting agent. And they do exist, so you can get organic ones. I have to say I have some mixed feelings about some of the wetting agents because they really are a detergent-based thing, and I'm not sure that they do your worms any good. Um, Mm. So I'm with you on that. I wouldn't necessarily use wetting agents like that, but if I can get myself a good organic one, and they they do exist, then I'd go there, and that might help. All right. Thanks a lot, but it sounds like it's just a factor that we have to deal with in Australia. Oh, look, in Australia we we have this really hot, dry summers um, and no soil is going to stay friable and gorgeous and and yummy right through the summer. Uh, It's always going to dry out a bit and watering from a hose just doesn't seem to cut it no matter mm. what you do. So, I mean, okay. you keep your plants alive, but you you certainly don't keep your soil lovely and sort of open and, and moist and gorgeous. Okay. All right, that's reassuring then. Thanks very much, <laughs> That's Stephen. a pleasure. Okay, bye. <sighs> oh, God, they're coming in thick and fast now. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to try and deal with them. Um, deal with them? That seems a bit harsh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, um, I'm going to line eight. I'm not too sure who I've got on line eight. Good morning. Hello. 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 Yes. Hello, I'd like to know where I can get hold of some mistletoe, please, dear. Well, you won't get the European mistletoe, which is the one that people kiss under because it doesn't exist in Australia. Uh, I don't think anybody is selling Australian mistletoe for Christmas as far as I know, Uh, but you could go up the Hume Highway and there's oodles of it growing on the gum trees up there if you can get high enough to pick it. Um, I remember years ago we had a little florist shop, our family, many, many years back, and somebody asked me for mistletoe, so I went out and sourced some because I was young and fit in those days and I clambered up a gum tree and cut down some mistletoe for them. And they were from England, of course, and our mistletoe doesn't look anything like the European mistletoe Mm. and I think they were somewhat disappointed Mm. so you're not going to buy it anywhere I don't think okay we must we must move on and and this time I think we have Liz online you there Liz oh hello look just quickly Graham what are the best David Austin's that you love for gifts Um, well Golden Celebration is fantastic Mm mm-hmm it's a really good rose, a really a good full yellow, as the name suggests, and it's really got a got a good perfume, and it and, and it can be 
you know, uh, one and a half metre climber, or you can form it up as a as a bush. It's a really good, uh, healthy uh, David Austin. Emily in the pink. Uh, yes, go for heritage. Heritage. What about yes. Jude the Thingo? Jude the Obscure. Yeah. If you like really cup flowers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, quite like it's quite Jude unique. the Obscure. Yeah, it's quite unique. Yeah, it is yeah. a unique name as well. <laughs> and it would be a slightly esoteric gift to give somebody because they'd wonder why you were giving them one called Jude the Obscure. <laughs> <laughs> be a good talking point. A, a very unique rose with a very unique name. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Graham. Merry Christmas to... All of you. Thank okay, you. Thank, thank you, Liz, and same to you. Bye. Bye-bye. <sighs> well, we have run out of time for yep. yet another week. And I had one plant left, but that's all right. Yeah, uh, you can still look it up on the thing and, and have a look at what it looks like, and then you can ring me at the nursery to find out why I wanted to talk about it if you need to. <laughs> well, you've got, you've got half a second right, if you want well, to quickly... It's, it's a climbing or trailing plant in the Euonymus family called Fortunii radicans, and it will grow up the side of things to a couple of metres. It'll grow along the ground, or it'll hang over a wall. So it will adapt itself to whatever environment you've got to grow it in. And it has a dark green leaf with a white vein down the centre, and that's about all it does. Its flowers are small and inconspicuous, but it really has an elegant form about it and it's a good ground cover to grow bulbs through because it doesn't grow too thick. And would you Fantastic. remember Euronymous? Yeah, Euronymous. Euronymous. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so there you go, I did it. <laughs> Uniquely well Euronymous. Done. Well done. Okay, well, it really is time for us to go. Uh, we do have two more Sundays left uh, before Christmas, so uh, we will definitely be back uh, Next Sunday morning at 7.30, a big thank you to Carolyn Louise who've had to handle some problems there this morning. They've had a bit of a, a tough time, but they've come through beautifully. So a uh, big thank you to them. Uh, till next week, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.